Well, you have me back, so that's a good thing, I guess. I'm well-fed, well-rested, and excited to be with you again this evening to share with you uh, some stories, some updates from uh, some places that we've been involved with recently. Um, if we're ready, we can start. I'm going to talk about two, two main areas tonight. One is the response to... Um, Hurricane Ian, um, that uh, struck, uh, actually, probably didn't hear much about it, but it first hit Cuba in, in the last week of September before it hit Florida, and that's when our response started. So we've actually been working with the uh, partners in Havana and then in the area of Cuba that was hit. Um, we have long-term partners there that uh, that. We're connected with, and so actually later in November, we have a, a team um, made up of some individuals from a number of different churches that'll be going uh, to the areas that were impacted, working with our partners there in um, in some outreach uh, efforts. So that's one dimension of it. Probably didn't make too much, didn't make the news too much, but. Um, Really, really great gospel opportunities um, flowing out of crisis response in Cuba. We've been working with partners there through a number of different hurricanes over the past uh, 10 years or so. But we have had had relationships there for many years um, in the past. The storm made landfall on the Florida coast in the Naples, Fort Myers area. Um, it's It's... I mean, you, y'all have had some bad thunderstorms up here. You've been through maybe even tornadoes. I don't know, you know, in the area. The, a, a Category 4 hurricane, that's the top sustained wind of that storm was 155 miles an hour. I mean, it, you can't stand up. I mean, it, it's, it, it just uh, rips off rooftops and casts things about. It creates what's in the ocean what's called a storm surge. So... Again, if you saw the news, you know, you saw these devastated areas, 10 or 15 foot wall of water just piling up on itself and coming ashore and, and uh, inundating and, you know, the whole oceanfront area and, and even many miles inland, three, four, five feet of water in places that, I mean, never have, uh, never have flooded. It was the, um, the worst storm to hit this part, the, the west coast of Florida in almost uh, 90 years and um, and the fatalities, ri- uh, the number of fatalities from this one were rivaling back to a, back to that storm from 1935. So, incredibly devastating and um, um, and impactful. You can see in the you know some some of the aftermath or in the in the midst of things. You know some areas that's about you know three feet of water or so. And uh, and so when the water comes in, it'll stay in for a little while till eventually it drains back out, but it takes some time. And, uh, so this, th- these are just some pictures of fire department people rescuing folks out of, um, apartment buildings and, and things like that, you know, so for those that didn't evacuate, it was, it was rather treacherous. You can see the result of the storm surge taking gigantic boats and carrying them miles inland and dropping them on top of, you know, cars and buildings and all kinds of things like that. So you see just some odd and crazy things. Um, all the streets down in, in that area where the floodwaters came in, you just drive along and there's these piles and piles of debris uh, along the roadside. As, as the floodwaters gets into the house, uh, the family has to get all of their possessions that's been inundated with the water. They have to come out to the street. They're, they're probably ruined. And then sheetrock has to get taken out either four foot up or all the way up to the ceiling. Or even maybe in a house like this where the, where the, the winds actually peeled the roof off. And then you get the rain that comes in. And, and so the house would have to, be, uh, have to be totally gutted. You'll see some pictures of what that looks like. But, the, you know, the... the the, uh, you know, we live in the place where there's hurricanes, and we've evacuated as a family. We've, we've stayed through storms as well. Um, it's an experience. It's, it can be rather, even the process of evacuating is disruptive. It's, it's certainly preserving life and limb, and there's tons of wisdom in that, but it's really disruptive. Uh, but, then being, but then coming back and, you know, 
coming back to that uh, is, is really, um, it can be very overwhelming. Many of the people that were impacted um, by the storm that we've been connecting with um, or people that have, um, many of them are, are older folks. They're maybe in some retirement stage. Many of them, um, there's one particular area near Naples where we're working where there was uh, like a, a, a manufactured home uh, community of, of retirees. And, um, and that community had maybe somewhere between two and four feet of water in these manufactured homes. Well, those do not do well when they get underwater. I mean, they really, uh, lots of problems and things. And, and this, this, isn't, this isn't like high-end, uh, multi-million dollar vacation home kinds of things. These are, these are just regular folks who decided, let's try to live in Florida. And they've got a very, um, what's the right word? you know, very... Um, average or nominal kind of a place to live in, you know, um, and, and now that's, it's, it's really dev- devastated or destroyed, um, so lots of challenges that they're facing. Difficult thing is lots of them don't have other places to go, and so they're living, uh, we've had many families where they're living in the place, there were two brothers, for example, um, they're in their, one's maybe in his early 70s, the other's in his late 60s. The older one is having has some medical problems and some uh, mind problems and things, um, and they're living in. They, we found them and they're living in the house. It had been maybe two weeks after the storm. Mold was growing on the walls and on the furniture and things, but they didn't have any other place to. to they didn't have any other place to go or do or be or whatever. So we ended up having to work with them to get their things out. Um, the brother didn't want to leave and move his other brother to a to a strange place, and it would be very disorienting for him. Um, so we just went room by room and and got things out and got the all the mold and and all of that addressed and such. But you know, it's just all of these individual circumstances um, as you start engaging in the you know the mass spectrum of things. You get these individual stories and individual circumstances of challenge and difficulty. Next one. Um, when the, as the storm hit in the very early days, you know, we started just heading in, in, in a particular direction where the pastor at the free church at Naples said to go. He said, go to this mobile home park or manufactured home park. Um, I know somebody there and I know they need help. And when we got there, uh, we were told that they had already had people coming in from out of town that had tried to come in and charge, you know, $10,000 to come in and do you know, four hours worth of work to move some things out to the street or whatever, just criminal people trying to take advantage of of these um, elderly people. They had actually blockaded, the, after a day of that, they had blockaded the entrances to their to their place and were, like, armed. They were keeping people out. So we were able to get in because the pastor came with us, and he knew somebody, and they're like, oh, okay, you know them, and they got somebody. Okay, well, you guys are okay. And once we were okay, and then once we actually started showing up and just, I mean, there's many hundreds of homes, we could only do what we could with, with the people we had, but, but we started helping, and they told us, go here first, you know, go there next. And they sort of triaged their own community and gave us direction of where to go and who to, who to help and such. And so we were able to, to leverage the trust of the local church and, and then multiply the efforts of the local church because uh, the, the members of the church then started coming out and helping with us. There's a group of ladies that started coming on Wednesdays. Uh, I think they've been there three or four Wednesdays now. And um, they just came one Wednesday for part of a day. And then they said, this is amazing. Let's do this again. And so they're coming back. Uh, you know, not everybody comes every week, but uh, but just really cool to see the local, the members of the local church connecting with people they didn't know in their community, but um, but again, willing. I talked about this this morning. Willing and available. They're just they're willing, and then they're making, they're adjusting their schedule to create some availability to be a part of what's needed for their community. Um, we typically go out as we start to work in a neighborhood. We'll typically send, get some people working, and then we'll typically send people out two by two. 
right? That has some biblical precedence. If you read Luke 10, you'll see that Jesus thought that was a good idea to send people out two by two. Um, and we'll, we'll just go and start looking to see where do you want us to be, Lord? Who do you, who's around? Who do you want us to engage with? Um, frequently, this, this will look like a prayer walk. It'll just be walking down the street and praying as walking by piles of things that the refrigerator is somebody's refrigerator. So I don't know whose it is, but, we, you know, but it can be cues to stimulate prayer as we're going. And then we meet people and we'll just start... Tell us about your Hurricane Ian experience. Where were you? What what happened? When did you come back? You know, helping them with those that that ministry of presence, practicing the active listening and asking good questions, and essentially a trauma care debrief as we're maybe sitting in the front porch or standing with them in front of their uh, in front of their property. This is actually uh, Pastor Bob DeGray. He's from um, uh, outside of Houston from uh, E-Free Church there and his wife, Gail. Gail's, Gail, uh, they were impacted by Hurricane Ike in, uh, that was 2008. And so I met Bob and Gail back then. We did a bunch of work with their church after that storm. Their neighborhood, was the, the area that their church serves was really hit bad by Hurricane Harvey. So um, the, the hurricane hadn't even... It, the flooding hadn't even reached its peak, and Bob was on the phone to us saying, when are you getting here? We're going to need you. And so we set up in their church for about three years. Um, but now they're, uh, Gail's part of our staff. Bob's soon to retire. I think he's going to join our staff as well. Uh, but they're part of our trauma care team. And so uh, they were able to come over for about two weeks right after the storm hit. Their church sent them. They said, you are not staying here. You need to go. Uh, because we experienced this, we know what it was like, and we know that you will be able to minister the gospel well there. We're good. We'll be good for a couple of weeks. You go. Next. You know, as we're going, we'll find people out, and we just, we just start to assess what's their circumstances. Um, listening to their story, understanding what they've been through. We start to collect information um, they, uh, sometimes we'll have a, ref- a form or a pa- piece of paper they'll fill out and they'll give us some, the contact information and what their circumstances are, you know, as much information as they know in their maybe physical state with insurance or FEMA paperwork and things like that. Um, so you can see she's got something in her, in her hand, you know, maybe a flyer from the local church with some information. Um, but, we won't leave until we've offered prayer, um, and uh, and we have that contact information. So then that contact information comes back to our office. We'll collect that, put that into the into the uh, I don't know spreadsheet or something. They got I'm not up on all that. So some way they put it all in a computer thing, and uh, but that gives us the ability to to have the phone number and contact information, so we can follow up. We we may. We may come back and help this this woman in some physical way, and and maybe even we did that day. I don't know, uh, or maybe in another week or two, or we may not be able to help at all. But we, but maybe a month from now, we'll have some people with some time that that would come and help us, and we'll just start calling through the list, and we'll just follow up and say, hey, remember we came by your house on such and such a day, and you know we were the people wearing those blue shirts or. And uh, or green shirts or whatever, and um, and uh, and you gave us your information. We just were checking on you. How? What's the latest? How you doing? Um, how can we pray for you today? And and just continue to engage in relational ministry. Next. Sometimes we will get inside the house. Uh, in this case, this this had a couple of feet of water in it, so they're checking in underneath the cabinets, probably deciding that the. Those cabinets are probably going to have to get taken out, um, but you know the, this is a this is a, a a hard day for the homeowners as you're going in and taking everything out and and uh, whatever. But you see, our staff will would take time. We'll just sit down and we'll just have a conversation uh, about the, uh, about like whatever's going on with life and things like that. One of the things that we say repeatedly 
uh, amongst our team. If you ever come and serve with us, you should hear this. It's about people, not the project. So it might be a day's worth of work, and if it takes us three days to do it, awesome. Because that was three more days that we got to engage with that family. Because it's about the people, not the project. But, but we want to sit. We want to just be with the people and be with them in, in whatever it is, whatever the circumstances are that they're experiencing. Next. You can see uh, this is the same, the same place, some of the same people there. Um, probably getting ready to leave for the day. So here go, you know, so we offer the, pr- the time of prayer, gather around. We've listened, we've heard, and, and now there's five or six people that can pray for different things that they've learned about that person and their circumstances uh, for the, you know, uh, as they're leaving. So personalized and engaged. Next. This was, um, this, this lady, uh, Mary, she, she said this. She said, my friends gave me help. She had other people that came in and did stuff, cleaned things out. I think we did some of the gutting. You can see what happens when, when you get, uh, you know, this is probably th- four feet of water or more. You know, it's got to go all the way up to the ceiling. So all the walls and all the floor, everything's got to go out. She said, my friends gave me help. You gave me hope. Right? So that's when it's about the people, not the project. When it's about the project, that's help. That's help. Like, I'll help you get that done. But accompaniment, that's, that's, that's transformational. That's when it's about hope, when we're really accompanying and walking with people. Uh, that was the first day. That, that's like first day kind of stuff. Like, they look like they, those three have been friends for 15 years, Right? That's a day's worth of helping somebody, a day's worth of engaging. Next. Um, and, hey, look, I'm going to have, well, I'm going to go through these, and then you can ask questions about either of these two responses or anything else in the EFCA or Reach Global, or I'm pretty good at math, too, so if you've got some questions about that, maybe. Um, so the other thing we were going to talk about tonight was the war in Ukraine. Um, so that on February 24th, uh, the world changed. Some of us didn't realize it. Uh, some of us did. Um, when I got, I got that news, because uh, time differences, I woke up with emails in my, or texts and emails in my inbox saying uh, the attack had started. We Reach Global had um, at the at the on February 24th we had the last of our uh, Reach Global uh, staff people deployed in um, in Kiev. Reach Global established a presence in Kiev in uh, the early 90s, 1993. I think we had our first couple there. We had a lot of families in Ukraine from uh, from 1993 for about a. Um, Oh, maybe about a 20-year time frame. Uh, lots of Reach Global families were in and out of different places uh, in Ukraine. So lots of relationships. And again, our Pam, our last um, uh, full-time worker, was in Kiev. So the first day was really stressful. Uh, our, our Europe staff, Todd, uh, Hiltebrand, you guys support uh, Todd. A uh, lot of time was spent... Um, figuring out how do we get Pam out of there quickly and safely. Uh, she had a 24-hour experience of travel trying to get out of the country to get, uh, to, get to a safe place in, um, in Budapest. It was very stressful. Um, and, and the harder, it was, as hard as it was to leave, the, the difficulties of the travel, it was even harder to, to not be there. Right, because that's where she—that's her ministry. It's her people. It's—it's it's where you are. And so this tension that exists about, like, you know, we have a, we have a, a, a responsibility organizationally to like care well for our workers. So you have to get people out of harm's way. Right? That's foolish, maybe, to not do so. Um, but uh, you know, but relationships and things. So so. The emotional stress, the, the difficulties for many, many missionary workers. But then also, um, p- 
people within Ukraine, Ukrainians themselves leaving and such. I'll talk a little bit more about that. This is in um, Kharkiv. Uh, so that's one of the major cities on the, on the east, uh, not far from the Russian border. Um, and this picture is not all that long ago, but this is a, you know, a, a very modern apartment building. Um, what remains of it, and you just all this debris everywhere, and here's the little park where the kids, you know, this is where kids played uh, 274 days ago, you know, but not now. It's, you know, it's just the realities of what the circumstances look like. Next. So the um, the devastation, the bombing, the invasion, you know, the the forces and coming in over, uh, you know, the advance was relatively quick. So there was a lot of people moving very very quickly in the first days and weeks uh, that followed uh, February twenty fourth. You can see you know more pictures of just some of the aftermath of the bombings. This is a a bridge um, outside of uh, of Kiev that was destroyed near near a, one of, near this church. One of our partners was um, just outside in the, not in Bucha, but in that region there, that was famous in the news for some time with some of the atrocities and things there. But not too far from where the fighting was, um, this basement of the church became a shelter for about 100 people. Um, and uh, as, so as the fighting and other things were going on, the, the congregation came and they brought other, others into the basement of the church and it just kind of became a revolving door. The pastor was working to try to find, you know, does somebody have a vehicle? Is somebody heading to the west? Can we find fuel? Can we, can, do you, how many spaces do you have? This, this trying to get people uh, to, to get out, to flee, to get out of the area, to head to the western part of Ukraine or out into the Poland and, and other places. And so he had this kind of revolving door for, for a whole bunch of weeks of... Um, of hundred, hundred, hundred and some people, so they were living there. They were cooking in the basement, um, and uh, and then you know uh, he said one day they uh, th- there was a knock on the door, and um, the, he went and opened the door, and there was three Russians there with guns, and um, and he said this is the church, and there's women and children in here, and you will not come in here, and um, and they turned around and walked away. Um, but it, you know, the, the just kind of real life things that happening for these, uh, for the pastors there. Next. Um, just giving you a bit of a, of a progression. So if I could paint a picture from, from the, what I just showed you to here, this is, this is in a, um, in a church, uh, evangelical free church in Poland. We had a couple of, uh, uh, there's about 30 or 40 evangelical free churches in Poland, and most of those were very busy hosting um, families. To get from, say, Kiev area or Kharkiv to, to, um, to uh, here in Poland would have involved, it could have been six days of travel um, or more. You could have, it, w- it was very common for people to spend two or three days waiting in line at the border, um, day and night, cold, you know, cold in the evenings. It was February, you know, so it was still cold. Um, it was some very difficult circumstances. Uh, people crowded into trains, you know, packed into vehicles, um, so you might have, uh, and, and then, and then the, the separation of families. So the Ukrainian government said, uh, if you have um, less, if you have more than, a family with more than three kids, the husband could go with the family. Well, yes, theoretically the husband could go, but, but then there's the property and there's the responsibility of dealing with the country and, and um, you know, maybe other pressures, but many of the men stayed. They could leave, but they stayed because they they had jobs. They need they they needed to. They were building, you know, barricades against tanks, and they were just trying to defend themselves. So many 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 left, but many stayed. But many couldn't leave. So families were separated, either voluntarily or involuntarily. So the women and children left, 
they went to Western Ukraine or beyond. I think the numbers, uh, maybe a few months ago, were as many as five million Ukrainians were outside of the country. There was another five to six million Ukrainians that were displaced in the country. So five or five and a half million would be refugees because they left their country. The six million or eight million or so would be internally displaced. So that's like half the population of the country is displaced. Um, and, then that, and then the families are separated. So we're going on now day 270-something. I forget what day, 275 or somewhere around that. I mean, that's a long, that's nine months of families being separated. Um, it's just really difficult circumstances, lots and lots of stresses. So family finally gets, you know, they get through the border area, but they're, as they're leaving, if they're coming into Poland, you've got to understand a little bit of history. In World War II, um, the, uh, some, some people, some Ukrainians, in order to, uh, to try to secure their freedom and to try to be a country, um, they sided with Germany because they had been oppressed by the Russians in, in the times up till then, between World War I and World War II. And, um, and so the Germans used some of the Ukrainians to oppress the Polish people. Um, and I'll show you a story of a church, and I'll, so keep that in your mind. I'll tell you more about that when I show you the church in Rubyeshuv. Um, so... The, the, the relationships between the Poles and the Ukrainians from historical was strained. There, there had been conquests and things back and forth over hundreds of years. So you're a Ukrainian, you're fleeing a Russian, and you're going to Poland. I mean, are you going out of the fire and, or out of the frying pan and into the fire? Like you don't know. So, so people are getting to Poland and they're scared. They don't really know what they're going to receive. Well, maybe you heard it in the news, but what they received was an amazing uh, act of grace and mercy by the people of Poland. Amazing response. Before the government could get organized, local individuals, local churches especially, were at the border picking up people. They, were just, they just started doing things. Um, local town, local governments, uh, you know, pe- people just started to do the right thing. And it was, it was um, it's just so cool to hear the stories from Ukrainians saying, I thought we were going to be, you know, victimized or t- whatever in some way. And people are, they're giving us food, they're giving us clothes, they're, they're bringing us into their homes. They're just like, they don't even know us, you know, and, and, but we're being welcomed in and just story after story of that kind of thing, you know. So, Churches opened up, and they, uh, they would put in maybe two or three families in a room, as many as they could put beds down for, because people needed a place to stay. It was cold. You couldn't have them outside. So it was amazing to see uh, the response and openness of the church. Next. Um, the, I put this picture up just to highlight this idea of the ministry of the presence, because the next thing that that we, in the places where we were working with our partners, we were like, man, brew the, get the coffee going, get the teapot going, drink tea and talk, listen to people's stories. This picture is, is actually the hands of um, one of our missionary cup, uh, of, uh, leaders of the Europe Division, one of Todd's counterparts, Julie Lauderdale. She leads, um, uh, she's working to lead our... Um, the work within Ukraine right now. So she and I are working uh, hand in glove. This is Julie's hand and the hand of somebody that she knew from, uh, from her days when she was in Ukraine years and years ago. This woman had escaped, uh, gotten out of the way of the war, had been through all of that travail of, of the travels and the border crossing and everything. And, um, and she got to uh, Budapest and Julie said, come to my house come and stay with me. And she said, I have tea ready. And before they unpacked the car, before they did anything, they sat down and they, and they drank tea. And Julie just repeated that process over and over again as, as people kept coming through. She just kept the teapot on and kept 
uh, just receiving whoever would come, and, um, and, but drinking tea, and tell me, what, tell me, tell me your story, what's been going on, what's, what's this been like the last few days, so, next, um, as people would get across the border, uh, they would face, many would face a situation like this, this is the, uh, the, the town gymnasium in this place called Hrubieshuv, Poland. And I particularly wanted to focus on this and the local church here as uh, just thinking about places that you might be able to identify with. When I, when I was when I'd driving in and, and um, going over to y'all's house, uh, the Hilti's house this afternoon, this place reminds me of Hrubieshuv. This town, Hrubieshuv, is maybe 15 or 20,000 people. There's beautiful farms all around it. And it, it's got a, you know, a little, little downtown. Um, it's seen better days. Um, maybe, maybe there was, I don't know what the history of it was. But, but this town, they just, they just opened up. All the public space they had, they took and filled it up with people. Well, uh, before this even got started... The local, the local church, the little local church, the, 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 um, you can go to the next picture. Um, this is the Hrubieshuv Evangelical Free Church. Um, that church is maybe probably 50 or 60 years old. Um, the building's way older than that, but it has a different history. Um, they, uh, that church is maybe 25 or 30 people. Um, Poland is a very hard place. It's a very unreached place. Um, the the pastor there, Pastor uh, Shimon and his wife uh, Lily and their family, I just give you a picture of them. The as the as Shimon and his brother heard that um, what was happening, that there were people stacking up and coming across the border, and it was two in the morning or whatever. Him and his brother said. We got to do something. So they went and got their van, the family van, and they just drove to the border. They didn't know they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't have a plan. They just said, "We got to go do something. We got we have to go." And they went and they got there, and it was chaotic. But uh, but they saw uh, there was some policemen and a fireman there, and they and they said, "Who are you guys?" And they said, "Well, we're pastors at the church." And they said, "You're pastors? Hey, these." These people here said they were, uh, they were church people and they wanted to go to a church. You take them. Like, take them where? I don't know, but they're going with you. Put them in the van. And they put them in the van and, and they're like, well, I guess we're going back to the church. So 3 a.m. in the morning, they're going back to the church. They're calling people from the church saying, we got, we got a load of people in the car and they're cold and hungry and 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 so some people from the church came and they started to get the kitchen going and they made some soup and whatever and then they and they dropped them off and they went back and they got another load and they and the, they said oh the pastors are here again let's get the people they said they wanted to go to with the church and so they just started picking people up so so some people went to that big place others went to to this church in Hrubieshuv and um now I'll tell you the, the other story I wanted to tell you about the the interesting thing. This building in World War II, it was a like a storage depot or something, a supply place, um, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, farm sales or something like that. Um, the Ukrainians had used the basement of this building to take Polish dissidents and Jewish people and to put them down in the basement until they were taken off to other places, to the Warsaw Ghetto or other things. You know, stories from World War II. Um, and on the, on the steps going down into the basement, burned into the wood in, in, uh, in Ukrainian, it says, four Jews. And, and, and it's like, that's the place that by God's grace... He chose for the church, and so what was used for evil, God redeems for good. I'm telling you, if I heard that story explained one time, I heard it a thousand times in this, in this 
Ukraine war saga. What was intended for evil, God is redeeming for good. And it's just so symbolic that these guys in this church started this work. And um, so you go to the next picture. This is, they took the attic and they fixed the attic up as best they could. They went and got some plywood and they made it neat. And they went and got beds and they put people in the attic. And uh, you can see some kids there, and, but it's, hey, people were there. They'd stay there maybe a night or two or three or even a week or two waiting to go to the next place, further into Poland or Germany or France or Netherlands or even Canada or somewhere, somewhere else, wherever they knew somebody, wherever they could, they could keep moving on. And then as soon as a bed was empty, they would be back at the, uh, well, they weren't waiting. They were getting calls from the border. Because what happened is after the first night, the police and firemen got to know these pastors. And so they could go and show up any time of day, and they were like, oh, the pastors are here, good, you know. And, and these guys told me before the, before the Feb, on February 23rd, nobody in that town even knew the church existed except the people that went to the church. Nobody would go near it because it was like, well, that's a cult or that's a something or other, you know. Well, here you have all the police and firemen they're like, and now they're caring for the police and firemen. They're, you know, ministering kind of as a chaplaincy to those guys. I mean, just amazing doors that opened uh, as a result of two guys in the middle of the night saying, I don't know what to do, but let's just go and see what the Lord will have for us. Next. They, uh, they took the, the next floor down. This is right above that room. Uh, they set up an area, so they had a, a, a dining room in here. You can see the ladies are, are taking some food supplies. They were packing boxes because when they were going, they, they connected with some uh, churches, some people they knew in Ukraine, some churches just across the border. So as they were going to the border, they'd go with a bunch of boxes of supplies. They'd end up meeting up with the guys from Ukraine. They, would, they couldn't cross the border, but they, I don't know, they knew the guys and they'd kind of let them hand the boxes back and forth. And so they could send some supplies back with the guys to go back into Ukraine. Again, just doing what you can with what you have. Next. Uh, there's Shimon and his two of his kids. Um, that's his brother, uh, Gregos, in the red shirt there. This other guy here smiling with the, with the beard, that's Lexi. Lexi and his wife came from, um, from a, a Pentecostal church in Lutsk, which is maybe two or three hours away from Hrubyeshuv. Um, they, uh, they evacuated out and, uh, and they just have ended up staying here and they've been an incredible part of the ministry, but this is just fellowship after church, uh, connecting with you. This is a Ukrainians and Polish people just breaking bread next. The, um, the, uh, as these guys were working in ministry, um, they said, you know, we, I mean, it's been amazing all this opportunity that we've had to work with the Ukrainians, but we want to reach Polish people too, so how can we do that? And they started thinking, well, what if we had a ministry center? What if we could put a, take a little storefront downtown and we could make like a little coffee shop and, um, and we could have some English classes and we could do some other ministry for kids? They have arts and um, whatever, and so they, they've, they've gone ahead and opened a coffee shop. This is a little tiny church, 20 or 30 people. Um, and, but they're, but they're, they're trying to serve the Ukrainians and, and such. This is, um, that's Lexi there pouring coffee, and this is Sasha. Sasha's a Ukrainian pastor. He's making trips back and forth to Ukraine, bringing supplies and people, um, and uh, so he stops in whenever he comes by. Next. They've set up a, uh, a sports outreach, so they're using the gymnasium and such uh, at, the, at a school to do some sports outreach. Next. Uh, Kharkiv Bible Church. Um, in, uh, in the 90s, when our Reach Global folks were there, there was also some missionaries there from the Free Church of Canada. Um, we were partnered together in, in doing some church planting, and this is one of those uh, legacy churches that was planted um, uh, years ago. And um, Kharkiv was, was the front lines for many, many, many days. Uh, but you can see some of the activities of that church. They've been um, 
getting these boxes from um, Campus Crusade, those, they have the four spiritual laws on the outside and then some supplies on the inside. So they've been handing those out, doing some distribution kinds of things. Next. Um, these are some trauma care sessions. They're using, they're using a tool with some um, photographs of different things, and people can look at the photograph and, like, how does, you know, as part of telling their story, this, this picture reminds me of this. So they're, they're doing lots of this, again, ministry of presence, trauma care kinds of things, gathering people together. That's uh, Pastor Slavo there pictured. Next. And then that's the church family. They had a, a gathering not too long ago for some training and such. So I just wanted to give you a little, a little vignette of uh, as you're thinking about giving, as you're investing, these are, the, these are where your funds are. This is what you're investing in. You're investing in Pastor Shimon and Gregos. You're investing in Pastor Slava. You're investing in people that are uh, you know, on the front lines. Uh, I, I mean, these guys were literally on the front lines, not so much now, but, uh, but they're still engaged in, um, in you know, front-line ministry. I think at their church, they probably lost maybe 80% of their church is gone, but they probably have two or 300 people that they're engaging with every week that aren't part of the church, but I guess they are kind of now because that's their church. Their church does... Their church is just discovering who Jesus is, you know, so they have like a two or three hundred person church, but they maybe have 20 believers in it or 30 or, you know, some small percentage of believers, but people are coming, they're engaging, they're learning about who Jesus is before they've even made that kind of personal decision. So but that's what discipleship is, right? It's, it's coming to understand about Jesus before actually believing in him. That's how it works for most of us anyway. So it's just great hands-on discipleship that these guys are engaged with. So time for questions or no? Yeah, question was the language barrier between Ukrainian and Poles. Um, in eastern Poland, western Ukraine, it's about 80% overlap. So there's some words that, uh, that'll be like, wait, you know, you would say this and, you know, you're thinking you're getting a cup of water and you'd get a wrench or something. I don't know, you know. But, uh, so there, you know, there's some, but there's about 80%. If you go further, um, further east in Ukraine and further west in Poland, maybe 30 or 40%. You know, so there's some dialect differences and things. Further east is in Ukraine is going to be more uh, Russian, a little bit less Ukrainian. But the area borders around here were, you know, so the area the area where Hrubyeshuv is, I mean, it, and across the way in Lutsk, Lutsk was Poland. I mean, Lviv was Poland for centuries. You know, and so language in this region is fairly uh, fairly good overlap. So these guys do pretty good. And, and then they've just been, you know, you, if you know 60 or 70 or 80% of a language and you just are, are using it for three or four months, I mean, you, you pick the rest up pretty quick. Great question. For me, for me and them, it's a goose egg. <laughs> I got nothing. My, span, my, my, you know, my bad Spanish and my marginal French don't do too much. Yeah, when did, so the question was, when did Ukraine um, receive independence? So yeah, uh, it, when the, with the fall of the Soviet Union and, and the, in the Gorbachev era, that's, that's when Ukraine um, got a, a nas- its own uh, formalized, world-recognized national identity. There's been a Ukrainian, there's been an identity of a Ukrainian people group for, um, for centuries. I've I've read a couple of really good history books on the on the region to to gain understanding of culture and context. So, but formally within our the the like I don't know UN world or official government recognized world, it would be since the fall of the 
Ukraine is a breadbasket. Again, it's like, in general, it's like this area. You, you know, it would be, um, it'd be like Iowa, you know? I mean, farmland and lots of, lots of fruit, you know, fruitful kinds of things. In fact, part of the, part of the, part of the circumstances surrounding the war is a, is actually a global concern over food insecurity, instability, because Ukraine was such a food exporter. So, so certain kinds of things they can, you know, they they have good soil. They're farmers. They can grow lots of things, um, but it's further north, right? So limited growing seasons, and so certain times a year you're growing, and then certain times a year you're going to the root cellar. And and in these moments, you know, the root cellar is kind of bare. Yes, sir. That's correct. Yeah, it, it, that that would have. Um, uh, yeah, so it. I mean. Honestly, that's like a that's like a semester course at college. I'm telling you, there's yeah the the the, the World War II issue was was the moment I was talking about. But there's been you know the border of Ukraine and Poland has been back and forth uh, for for centuries. So the so the concern, the latest cause for the concern though was uh, would have been as a result of World War II and the Ukrainian. Ukrainian alignment with the Germans in World War II and the oppression, their mutual oppression of the Poles. Um, yeah, well, I'm not going to get into a political conversation. I, I don't, um, yeah. I think there's a I think there's a uh, I think there's a deeper spiritual issue than Nazi this or whatever. I think there's I think there's evil people seeking to do evil things motivated by forces that are not of this world. Yes. Yeah, so Yeah, so Ukraine actually is like the Bible belt of Europe right now. Um western Ukraine particularly the Lviv that area that region is um there's um actually I was just on a call with Julie and there's like 16 seminaries that that are working together. There's 16 seminaries in in Ukraine. I mean it there's there's a gospel presence there for sure. Um, part of the part of the interesting thing with this diaspora of people is that there are believers in Ukraine who are going to France or Netherlands or Poland or you know the gospel is going with them to other places, and and so part of what we've been looking at across Europe in general is how do we how do we help stimulate gospel movement amongst Ukrainian believers who are now in Paris? How do, we, how do we engage with them and connect them into, you know, healthy, vibrant churches and, and engage them in, you know, reaching other Europeans? I will tell you that the, the soil is, um, well, it actually is really fertile, right? But the spiritual soil is incredibly fertile because there's a mission field that follows crisis. Because of the war, because of the disruption, because of all of the things that are going on, that's why churches are growing. I mean, it's, I would say, I mean, I can't say every, right? Because who knows? I don't know every. Most all churches that I'm aware of in Ukraine 
that are engaging in some way in serving their, the community or the people around them are, they, the people are outside the doors. I mean, you know, you have a church of 50 and there's 300 people because, you know, the churches are responding. The churches are stepping up. The churches are places where people are engaging. You know, there's a, I was just uh, on a call on Friday and um, hearing a story about a, a little church in um, uh, near Brovery, and um, it's getting cold out, right? So there's the, the one um, leader, he got a tent, and he got a heater, and he got a, a big kettle to make hot water, and, um, and he's got a generator he can run for a couple hours a day. So he set up a warming hut. So... You, it's cold, you don't have heat, there's no electricity, you know, the, the power grid's going on and off and such, so you can come and charge your cell phone, he's got a, a wood stove in there or something, he's keeping the place warm, and, you know, they just come and be warm. I mean, those are the kinds of incarnational things that, that we see churches doing that are, I mean, it's just amazing, it's awesome, you know, it's awesome to see. One more, last one. Yes. Um, you know, I have not. I, I can't. I can't answer that with any accuracy. Um, I would say that every Ukrainian, that to my knowledge, is doing something. Yeah. I mean, people are. It's just. It's one of those moments where, as a country, as a people, people are coming together. And, uh, you know, some of the things that we're, as we're, we're talking about some things with some partners that are, that are, you know, looking at crossing denominational lines, even including conversations with Orthodox leaders and, um, you know, different uh, leaders, because there's this sense of, um, of we, we have to be together, you know, as a nation, as a people, but especially as the church. And I think it's a, I think there's a moment it's one of the things we're thinking, could this be something that the Lord is doing? Is there a role that we can play as, as cross-cultural workers? Can we help to be bridge builders for you know, transcending denominational divisions that maybe were there in the past? But how can we, how can we help to bring, um, um, you know, yeah, bring unity. Yeah, good word. Bring, bring something that represents something that glorifies God in the end. So, good. Yeah. Hey, thanks for letting me share. Thank you, Mark.